important for the lesson that we've gone through over those many weeks. I think that was some fabulous, fabulous stuff. It just had me excited every time I just dug into who God is, why God exists, who am I, why I exist, and on and on and on. And so I really appreciate that lesson. That's a lesson that we'll always bring back around ever so often because people really need to know who God is. And when you come to know who God is, it changes everything about you. It changes everything about you. And so it is very important. So we're going to go through a few scriptures tonight, and then we'll, we're going to get into our lesson. Um, we're going to start with Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 through 8, then Genesis 3, 21, then Hebrews 9, 22. Genesis 3, 6 through 8, Genesis 3, 21, Hebrews 9, 22. These are the scriptures that we'll take a close look at tonight and kind of as we try to go through our lesson. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat, and the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So, um, obviously, Adam and Eve, they were in the garden, they were naked, and for all the time they were in the garden naked, they didn't know they were naked. They didn't know they were naked. They were in the garden naked, but they didn't know they were naked. Listen. Sin don't destroy God. Sin destroy us. And every time we mess up, what we do is we open the door to new information that we're going to have to battle with as we continue on this journey. That's that's if I could put it in a nutshell, that's probably what I would say about sin. When you sin, all you have done is open up a new door of battles. That you will deal with as you attempt. You just make your journey that much harder when you sin. That's all we do. We make our journey in Christianity a lot harder when we sin than if we don't sin. Verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Genesis 3.21, jump down, same, stay, 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 stay in the same chapter. Stay in the same chapter. Um, but we'll jump down to verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God made coats of skin and clothed them. You notice? When they realized that they were naked, they wanted to cover up real quick. And so the first thing they got was fig leaves, some leaves, and cover up their private parts. And right after that, when the Lord came looking for them, not that he didn't know where they were. He knew exactly where they were when he came looking for them. And and they were naked, and he realized they were hiding. Guess what he did? He came with animal skin, coat. Anybody know the difference between a coat and a jacket? And jacket what? Okay. Get revelation. God want us to dress properly. 
<laughs> That's not my word. I'm just telling you, when they realized they were naked, they grabbed some leaves. Woo, let me cover up. And they covered up. And God said, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not proper. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Here's coat of skin. And he made them a sheep, sheepskin coat. Drop it on them, down to the ankles. You're good now, go ahead. You covered up. So we can wrestle and fight and say what we want and how things should be. I never forgot when God gave me that revelation. How important it is to him that we cover up. Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. We're going to talk a little bit. On this lesson tonight, our first discipleship lesson in the fall edition, we're going to talk about the gift of repentance. The gift of repentance. The big idea of this lesson is this. Because, we're, because we all battle with temptation and sin, God has given us the gift of repentance. We all battle with sin and temptation. So God gave us the gift of repentance. And so that is very important to know that repentance is a gift from God. Why didn't Adam say anything as he stared in horror at Eve while she bit into the fruit? We may never know that, even though I've heard some preachers said. Adam knew that Eve was going to die when she ate the fruit. And he didn't want her to die and him be alone. So he decided he'll just eat it and die right along with her. <laughs> I'll just tell you what some people say. We, we can't prove that until we finish our course and keep the faith and get to heaven. Then we can ask Adam, why did you eat the fruit after you knew she wasn't supposed to eat it, and you wasn't supposed to eat it. And after she ate it, why did you eat it? That made no sense, Adam. We can ask him that after we get to heaven, when we get to heaven. Instantly, when they ate it, their perception changed. They suddenly felt vulnerable, exposed, and ashamed. That doesn't change. When you sin... If you have any kind of relationship with God, if you know anything about God, when you sin, meaning disobey God, and we'll get into that a little bit, but just to make it easy for you to understand what sin is, to know good and do it not. When you don't do what you know you're supposed to do, you sinned. And anytime you do that, it makes you vulnerable, it makes you exposed, and it makes you ashamed. This is why when we start doing wrong, we stop coming to church. And so matter, no matter what you want to tell the preacher when you don't come to church, the, teacher, the preacher will just go by the word of God and says, okay, if you're staying away from God, it must mean you're disappointed in how you're living for God. 
You can, you can, you can fix it any way you want to. I'm just telling you, if the preacher know anything about Jesus, anything about the word of God, he's going to know if this person is staying away from church, it just means they're not satisfied with how they're living for God. They're not pleased in how they're living for God. So they're kind of shunning away from him. Listen, let's make it normal. How many of you do wrong to someone, know you did wrong to them and you want to see them? But it's the same thing with Jesus. When you disappoint him by sinning, you don't want to see him. You don't want to handle him. You don't want to deal with him. So you stay away from his house. You can say whatever you want. That's just a fact. So if the preacher don't see you, you can come tell the preacher anything you want. If the preacher knows anything about the word of God, the preacher going to say, okay. And he smiles and says, well, it's just good to have you here. And the preacher knows in his mind they've been struggling. They've been battling. Because that's when we stay away from God. But I learned a long time ago. So you got to live and learn. The way I came into church was I hung out Saturday night, partied, drank, had a good time. Coming late in the morning or early in the morning, if you will. Five in the morning, six in the morning, 430 in the morning. I come in that time and I still try to get up to go to church in the morning. And because that's the way I I started going to church before I got saved, I'm smart enough now to realize it doesn't matter how terrible I might have done. I'm finding myself to the house of God because this is what I know. If I don't go, I stay in my terrible state. I have no chance if I stay away from the church. I will not have a chance if I stay away from the church and getting it right with God. But if I can make it there, maybe somehow I will get convicted enough to repent of my sins and get my life right, my heart right, and get it right with God. But if I stay away, I have no hope. So I learned that over the years that ain't nobody keeping me out of church, not even me. (laughs) Not even me, because I'm the worst one. If I mess up, I'm telling myself, oh, you messed up now. You better not go in that church because you are no good. Uh-huh, but I got the victory over me. So if I get the victory over me, nobody else stopping me from coming to church. And that's how I look at coming to church. See, everybody look at church, come to church a different way. I'm coming no matter what. Whether I'm doing good or I'm doing bad, I need to be in the house of God. Because you just never know when God is going to do something miraculous. You never know what God wants to do in your life. So you say, you know what? I'm going to assemble with the body and see what God will do. So when you when you mess up, you're going to feel vulnerability. You're going to feel exposed like, my goodness, I just feel like something is just not right. And you're going to be ashamed. But don't you let that stop you from coming into the presence of the Lord. And so that's what Adam and Eve felt instinctively when you feel that kind of stuff you run far away from god so what they did when they felt that they ran in the middle of the garden where where it probably been heavy bushes and high trees and they ducked down when they heard the voice of god walking the cool they ducked down they're like i'm hiding i mean i don't even know why they did that because they knew god was everywhere but no matter what god came after them and he called them by their name so while they were running from god god was running after them 
<laughs> My God, what a God. So he went after them. Adam, where art thou? And all he was just trying to do is give them the opportunity to repent. You see now how we get to understand that repentance is a gift from God? Because if God don't extend that gift of repentance, we keep running in our sins. And if we stay in our sins, we will not inherit eternal life in Christ. So he gives us this gift to say, stop running from me and run to me. God knew well their need to cover their nakedness and shame. Without consulting them, he slaughtered an innocent animal. Key word, innocent animal, shed its blood, took the hide, and made them clothing. They would never be the same again as they experienced God's judgment upon their disobedience. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes, sir. God does not want one single human to suffer an eternity without him. God does not want one single human being to suffer an eternity without him. This is why he has given us the gift of repentance. Because if there's no repentance, you will not spend eternity in the presence of God. God's nature is not to destroy, but to redeem. I don't know why we don't understand that. We treat God sometimes like this monster that gets real angry and want to destroy everybody. When his nature, the core of who he is, is to redeem us, is, is to love us and take care of us. And when we do wrong, we want to run far away from him. Now listen to this. His patience can be exhausted though. Hmm. There may be a few people that re had reached the point of separation from God with no return. Ask yourself this question. Is there a line individuals can cross and be at a point of no return permanently in their relationship with God? Well, before you get there, you know, it's like wanting to do right. I'm not even sure that's the right word. But getting to a place where you know you should do right, but you just find yourself not doing right. And it just continues that way, continues that way, till you just keep going down, 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 and eventually you might commit suicide. Eventually you do something crazy. Because you got to a point of no return in Christ. Is that possible? We'll take a look at that in a second. On the Niagara River in New York... There is a certain place in the Russian rapids the locals call the line of no return. They say if you are in the water at that point, the current is so strong that you have 13 seconds before plunging over Niagara Falls, which is going to end in your demise usually. Uh -huh. In extremely rare scriptural cases, some have apparently crossed such line. Point of no return. 
And so while God has given us this gift of repentance, if we take God for granted, we could find ourselves in a place of no return and no matter what can never get it right so you can get right with God. See, that's the risk we run when we continue to just sin and sin and sin and never stop. We know God is a forgiving God and a merciful God. We know God don't want to destroy us. We know all these things. But is there a point of no return and no matter what, you can never make it back? Interesting. And so what do you do? Now, remember, well, let's take a look at this. Esau, Esau, Jacob's brother, his twin, Esau is one who throughout his entire life demonstrated no sensitivity or respect towards God. He was raised in a family that was God-fearing. He knew all about God, but he was never respectful. He was never sensitive towards God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 through 17. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 through 17. It says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. That's what it said about Esau. So the first thing I want to tell you that you want to point out in that scripture is it says, be careful lest a, lest a root of bitterness spring up in you. You know, we like to think sometimes of these, what we call big sins that destroy us. You kill somebody, so you're in trouble. You just told a big fat lie. You're drinking a whole lot of alcohol or you're smoking and we, 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 we tab these things and label them as the big sin. But the scripture talks about a root of bitterness, Bob. And if bitterness grab a hold of you, it will destroy you. Bitterness. I didn't say murdering someone. I didn't say drinking or smoking or cussing or fighting. I didn't say any of those things that we can look at and say, yeah, that's a big sin. I didn't say any of those. I said a little root of bitterness. Little bitterness getting you and you're in a whole lot of trouble. The Bible describes bitterness as poison. Poison that will lead you to deny the faith. Man, I can't tell you how often I've seen people have problematic situation in their life, real problem, pr problematic situation that I'm not even making it seem small, real problems. And they allow that problem to cause bitterness to spring up in them. And it led them away from the faith. 
led them away from the faith. And I can't say it enough and I won't stop saying it. If we don't make sure we're in right relationship with God, little things are going to become big things. And before you know, they're going to cause us to become bitter and cause us to walk away from the faith. And usually when that happens, you justifying it. But you can never justify not being in God's good graces. How are you going to justify not being in right? Well, I had, had to do what? To be taken out of God's good graces? To be living a life that's not... Who will let you... You okay with explaining that? Well, I had to. They did this to me. You don't understand. I was going through this. You just made your situation or your problem stronger and greater and more important than God. If you start saying all of that. Because I've seen it too often. As a matter of fact, I will go as far as to tell you, your big problems or your little problems, deal with it and move on. Leave it alone. Don't talk about it a whole lot. Deal with it and once you're done, leave it alone and move on. If there is not a substantial way of getting it taken care of and moving on, leave it to Jesus. Because the more you talk about that situation, the more muscles it gets. The more you try to find somebody to talk to you about it because you feel so strongly how right you are and how wrong that other person is, the more muscle it gets. The more you talk about it, the more muscle it gets. Now listen to this. You don't think if you talk about Jesus that much, you'll get stronger spiritually too? You don't think so? You don't think at the same amount of time you use to talk about your situation, you just ignore it and talk about Jesus. You don't think you get strong? Don't let the devil trick you. Don't let the devil trick you. Get strong in Jesus. Don't let that situation be so strong that you find yourself outside looking in because of that situation that you had every right. You felt like you had every right. To be what you were being and who you were being. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Yes. 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 More muscles. It's getting stronger and stronger. The arms get big and the legs get big and the shoulders get big. Because they're telling you something to make you feel like you're right. They're, 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 you know what's funny? You ever notice this? Somehow, we always have discernment. I'm being funny too. We always have discernment to find the right person that can support what we're dealing with. We always have that discernment. We never have the other discernment. But that discernment, I'm going through something right now. And I go find some Somehow, I don't know how I knew to go talk to that person. And all of a sudden now, that person, yeah. And now me and that person is connected. I'm telling you, man, that devil is something. Me and that person probably would have never connected if it wasn't for that situation. But now the situation, they can relate, I can relate, and the devil just work on us. 
Mm-mm-mm. Bitterness is like poison. It get a little bit of you and it start poisoning your entire being. And before you know when you're poisonous, I mean, there's nothing you can do. It leads you away from God. It leads you away. The key descriptive term concerning Esau is that he was blasphemous or disrespectful towards God. Remember, he was the eldest of the twin and the birthright of the family was supposed to be his. But he treated it blasphemously and disrespectfully. We better treat this God-privileged relationship like nothing else. The scripture defends this derogatory reference by citing the selling of his birthright. How can you claim to fear God and sell your birthright to be the spiritual leader of your family? Why do you think Jacob would even attempt to wrestle this this birthright away from Esau unless perhaps... He had heard Esau spoke derogatorily or disparagingly about it. So don't think Jacob just went to Esau and said, I'm jealous and I really want your birthright because I'm the spiritual one and you're not. And so if you will get this, if you will give me the birthright, I'll give you. No, 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 no. Jacob watched him and watched how he didn't care. And watch how he never wanted to come to devotion at home. And watch how he wanted to hang with non-Christian people all the time. Jacob watched all of it and says, he don't care nothing about this spiritual birthright. So he waited until it was the right time. And he made him sell his birthright to him for some food. Had Esau... Are Esau's tears been more inspired by conviction than self-pity? Perhaps he would have found that coveted place for repentance. So remember after he sold his birthright and, 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 and now all the prayers was prayed over Jacob and Jacob received all the blessing and now here come Esau, father will you pray for me? And the father said, listen, I prayed over your brother already. He's got all the blessing. He started crying. When he knew he sold that birthright already. Why did he start crying? Because self-pity. He realized what he had done. He wasn't crying because he respected his birthright. He wanted what it... mm. He want what the birthright can do for him. Church, ask God to help you not to live for him because of what he can do for you. We got to, God help me to know you so well and come into a relationship with you because of who you are and not because of what you can do for me. Because if that's the case, you will not love this. You will come here only because it's necessary for you to get to heaven. You will come to church and you won't want to worship or praise because you're doing it because you feel like it's necessary because that's the only way I can get to heaven. But if you're doing that sooner or later, it won't last. Just like... Esau, you got to love this thing. It got to be what you love. It got to be, I love living for God. I love God. I love to go to church. I love the worship. I love the praise. You got to love this thing because if you don't, you will become like Esau and you'll give up on a lot of things God wants to do in your life. 
It might not be a birth birthright, but it will be God's purpose and calling for your life. And one thing I know that I feel strongly about, I haven't found scripture to back it up yet, even though I'm sure a scholar can back it up for me. Any person that abandoned their God purpose in him, you will not get to heaven. So some people think that, you know what, I will just go to church and just live for God the best way I can and try not to fulfill your purpose in Christ, you will never make it. Because what that's called is selfishness. And remember I said, I don't think there are going to be any selfish Christians in heaven. I don't think it's possible. I don't even think the term work, selfish Christian. I don't see how that works. You can't be a Christian and be selfish. So there's not going to be any selfish Christian in heaven. So if you know that God has a purpose for you, but uh, I don't want to deal with all that. I'm just going to come to church and clap my hands, but I'm not doing all that. You're going to find yourself like Esau, not living for God. And then when the rapture come or when blessings begin to be poured out upon others, you're going to feel pity because you're going to know it should have been you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not going to do that because it's not serving me. That's what selfishness is. Everything got to serve me. If it ain't serving me, I'm not doing it. And God is not about that. And so Esau cried out of self-pity. And he never was able or God never gave him the opportunity to repent. Now that's scary. He never had an opportunity to repent. Why? He lived all his life treating his birthright and his relationship with God like, it's just getting in my way. It's not my thing. Jacob, it's your thing. You like when dad... Praying. You like when dad read the Bible, well, read the scrolls. You like when dad, you know, get us around and talk to us about what God has done. You like that, Jacob. I'm not into that. Jacob in the house, being a little virgin, he not going around with the girls outside. And he's like, man, you better get it together. Be a man. I'm out here with the girls. That's how you live. You, you want to go back and look at it. He was running with the girls. And Jacob always a little house boy. Virgin. Not doing nothing. He didn't care nothing about the things of God. And if we come into the church, come into Christianity and don't care nothing about God, we might find ourselves in a place where we can never repent because God has to extend to us the gift of repentance for us to repent. There is no concrete theology that uniformly and emphatically informs us exactly when we run out of God's mercy, but we can be sure there is such a place. One young man was worried he had crossed the line of no return after making light of one major doctrine of Scripture. But after seeking wise counsel from his spiritual authority, he was assured that because his behavior had not been a pattern, his heart had not been smitten by conviction, his, his heart had been smitten by conviction, he would be fully restored into his relationship with his father. Think about the prodigal son. He found a place to repent. 
why he found a place to repent, but Esau didn't, because it's all about God's gift of repentance. It's God that draw you to repentance. You, you, you don't repent on your own. God draw you into repentance. And so the prodigal son, it wasn't a pattern of behavior. He just one day decided, let me just go. I don't know if his brother got on his nerves so much that he decided he needed to leave home. But he left home. And he lived recklessly for a little bit. But after a while, the Bible said he came to himself. And he came back home and restored back his relationship with his father. And so I say to you that if we don't live constantly a life of recklessness and a life of, um, um, you know, treating the things of God like it doesn't matter, that there will be a time where God will extend his mercy that we will repent. God's reaction to human sin is first anger and then mercy. I didn't agree with that for a second. And then I saw in Psalms 30 verse 5. Where it says, for his anger endure it but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for night, but joy cometh in the morning. So when we do things that are not pleasing to God, when we sin, God is angry. But then mercy come right behind it. I think some of us probably experienced that with our children. <laughs> you know, I know I do. They do something wrong and you just lose it. Angry. Sometimes you get, ang- well, let me just say for me, sometimes I get angry that I hit them so hard that I, I might have done some damage. And I look, I see I did damage. I'm like, oh, man. And now I'm just, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't do that. So God responds to us as children are like that sort of kind of. We sin and anger, but then mercy. He extends his mercy so we can be fine. Um, let's see here. On more than one occasion, the anger of God was dissuaded by the human response to his disapproval, followed by a mercy act of God, God sent a prophet to a wicked city with a message of doom and no hope. Jonah, Jonah 3 and 4, the pagan king of that city called for a citywide fast and humility before this strange God and the Lord withheld his judgment. Jonah 3 and 5 through 10, God's justice required judgment for disobedience, but his response to the king of Nineveh demonstrated or demonstrates that God is always looking for any justifiable reason to extend mercy. Let me say this to you. This is very important. And um, all of the Bible scholars and the not yet Bible scholars, let me say this to you. God always know what he's going to do. I have been one to say God changed his mind. No, God don't change his mind. God always know what he's going to do. What he does is he gives us options according to our behavior will dictate what he will do. But he didn't have his mind set up and then he changed it. So for Nineveh, God wasn't intended that, okay, you'll cause me to change my mind. If you do this. No, he's saying 
either you repent and I won't overthrow the city, or if you keep going, I will overthrow the city. So God don't change his mind. He knows what he's going to do every time. And so with, with Nineveh and, and, and Jonah going to preach the gospel to, to Nineveh, he went to preach to them. And because they did what God, they did what would make God uh, pleased with them, he didn't overthrow that city. Right? Adam and Eve disobeyed God by... They disobeyed God. They experienced shame as their eyes were open and they recognized their nakedness. Secondly, as they heard his voice calling them, they explained a fear of God. They experienced the fear of God and went and hid themselves. Shame and fear are the dominant emotions that follow acts of disobedience towards God. So we will always... Feel shame and fear when we disobey God. Shame and fear are healthy emotions if they turn us towards God and that we seek him for forgiveness. So there's nothing wrong with feeling shame and nothing wrong with having fear when you disobey God. That's God working. Here is what you should worry about. You should worry when you start to disobey God and you don't feel nothing. That's when you start worrying is when, as a Christian, you do wrong, but it doesn't really make you feel fearful. It doesn't make you feel uh, ashamed. So if you're a Christian and you do wrong and you don't feel ashamed and you don't have fear of God when you do those wrong, you may be in a little bit of trouble. Because the shame and the fear is what drive you towards God to get yourself right, to repent. That's what drive you. That's how God gets you to get back on the right track. But if you never feel ashamed and you never feel fearful, what are you going to God for? So that means the sins that you've committed, they're all piled up on you. And they're not going anywhere because the only way to get your sins removed is by going to Jesus. So if we're living for God and we do wrong, don't take it the wrong way. Here's the Holy Ghost. Some of us do wrong and because we don't feel shame or fear, we think it wasn't wrong. Well, God is telling me to tell you it's wrong. But you, 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 you told yourself that so much that God has left you alone in that matter. And if you don't stop and realize, you know that according to God's word, it's wrong. Don't act like you don't know. If you don't stop and and say, God, I know I have done wrong here. And even though I don't feel your, your convicting power, even though I don't feel ashamed, even though I don't feel fearful, according to your word, it's wrong that I've been doing. And I need deliverance. And I need to be saved. And I need to be delivered. And I want to be set free. And I want to be right from this. You better start saying that. Don't fool yourself and say, well, I don't feel no conviction. I don't feel no shame. So I don't see what's wrong with that. Okay. God just warned you. The emotions of shame and fear can become debilitating, if not destructive, 
when you don't respond and go to God. The essential nature of God is love. First, Second Peter 3 and 9 says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's default when dealing with disobedience in humanity is to be patient. To supernaturally draw us to himself and to be quick to forgive. God's resources are unlimited. So immediately after confronting Adam and Eve, he made a new way for them to survive his judgment. When Peter asked how many times we should be willing to forgive and then suggest seven times, Jesus multiplied that by 70 and he says 490 times. And that's in one day or for one particular sin. 490 times you should be forgiven someone. So none of us have the right to say, I don't forgave you too many times. We don't have the right. Because you never forgave them 491 times. And believe me, that was only there to let you know it should be just multiple times. You don't count it. Now, if Jesus is teaching us we should forgive people for any one sin in any one day, 490 times. What do you think he's doing for us? He's a merciful God. <clears throat> sin is the reality of our broken world, and we must learn what to do when we succumb to temptation. Paul addressed the universal battle we face by virtue of our entrance into the fallen world when he wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. John wrote that we are deceived if we lie. We are deceived if we live under the pretense of living sinless. Anybody that said they live sinless, they are a liar. That's 1 John 1. 8 through 10. Opportunity is all around us to transgress God's word. It is as dangerous to live under the false assumption that we are untouchable by sin as it is to have a cavalier attitude about living righteously. So I know people that feel like they're so righteous that they never sin. Oh, yeah. There are people that's walking around saying they never sin. But the Bible says if they feel that way, it means they are a liar. And the truth is not in them. Because all have sinned. So it's, it, it, it's, it's it, we're, we're being liars if we walk around and say, oh, I don't sin. I never sin. Both mindsets are trapped, are traps set by the enemy. We should never have a sense that we are mature enough in Christ that we are no longer capable of sinning. We also must not become so relaxed that we play with temptation rather than stand guard and be vigilant. So you can't act like you can't be tempted because you can be tempted. And you can't act like you're so righteous that you never sin. Both attitudes are ignorant. The result of Adam and Eve's transgression is they lost direct contact with God. They were driven from the Garden of Eden, which is which was paradise on earth, and God placed a curse upon each of them and upon the ground. There were many hardships they had never suffered, but their disobedience opened a whole new world for them. You see what I mean? By sin only makes your life in Christ harder. It doesn't have anything to do with God. 
So Adam and Eve, their life became more difficult when they sinned as opposed to if they didn't sin. The ground was no longer yielding um, um, like it used to and, and things were just not happening the way it was before they sinned. So when we sin, take the lesson from the book, when we sin, we just make our life in Christ a lot more difficult. So we think sin means, oh, you know, God is upset or, you know, this or that. No, no, sin means you just made your life that much more difficult to make it to heaven. They would exude physical labor, experience pain in childbirth, and encounter new threats all around. Perhaps the most difficult new normal for the husband and wife was they no longer would have the close communication with God that they had once enjoyed. Prior to their sinful act, no sacrifice was needed. Before sin, no sacrifice was needed. The only thing necessary to communicate with God was to show up at the special place at their special time every day. Talking and walking with God was easy and natural. But after their sin, the relationship was much different. What they had done actually estranged them from their creator who desired fellowship with them. From then on, a blood sacrifice would be required to appease God's judgment before communication could commence. By God killing an animal to make them a covering, he was demonstrating the principle that innocent must die for the guilty. We back to that. The innocent dying for the guilty is called mercy. The innocent dying for the guilty is called mercy. But we understand that the the justice also must be done, which is there must be the shedding of blood for sin to be removed. So Jesus, when he died for us, he paid the price of blood being shed, but that was also him showing mercy at the same time. So Jesus dying for us showed mercy and justice at the same time. This is why when you go to Isaiah 53, it says it pleased God to bruise him. Because justice was prevailing. Mercy was being given. And so whenever blood is shed, it's the justice of God and the mercy of God at the same time. And so God shed blood that our sins could be removed. Repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is reversal of decision. Repentance is to change one's mind or purpose for the better. So whatever your mindset or whatever your purpose, if it's not towards God, when you repent, it becomes towards God. So if if my purpose, I'm 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 just cursing Chuby out, and that's my, what my functionality is right now, and I'm cursing, I'm going off on him. If I say I repented, what I'm saying now is. I am changing. I'm reversing my actions. And you know what I got to do? Say good things to him now. This is what we like to do. And my bad, I'm sorry. And we think that's repentance. No. It says it must be a reversal. 
And so if I was cursing you out, now I got to be telling you good things. If my mindset was dirty towards you, it got to be right towards you now. That's the reversal. That's the change of one's mind. Repentance, a turning away from sin, disobedience, or rebellion, and a turning to God. So anytime you hear the word repentance, it means turn away from wrong, but you have to turn to God. You can't turn away from one thing and never turn to God and say it's repentance. It's not repentance. A lot of times we're sorry, but we didn't repent. And so you wonder why you're still struggling. It's, it's easy to still struggle because you never really repented. You just felt bad. Feeling bad and repenting is two different things. The feeling bad is the mercy of God. That gift. Because if you was in your sinful state, you wouldn't feel bad. <laughs> when you're in your sinful state, you can care less. You cuss people out and say they deserve it. Glad I cussed you out. Got on my nerves. You're not sorry. He told them off. Matter of fact, it made you feel good. Maybe I'll tell you off again the next time I see you so I can feel even better twice. You don't feel bad. So when you do wrong and you feel convicted bad about your wrong, that's the mercy of God. That's God's gift of repentance reaching you. And so if you would respond by repenting, by saying, oh, God, forgive me. I just did wrong. I sinned against you. And I told my brother off. And God, I ask that you will forgive me for that. And from now on, I will always tell my brother good things. From now on, I will always encourage him and build him up. And no longer, you can't repent and just just ignore the situation moving forward. You didn't repent. You felt bad and you told God sorry, but you didn't repent. You want to repent? You got to start doing something different. I used to. If you don't believe me, when you get a chance, go read Psalm 51 with David. David, after David confessed all his stuff and asked God to wash him and cleanse him, this is how David ended his prayer. He says... That I now from this day can teach others how not to transgress the way I did. So when you stop living the life of transgression and start living a life of righteousness and teaching others that life, now you have repented. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's how you know you repented. But too many times we've said, you just feel sorry. We're almost done. In a more general sense, repentance means a change of mind or a feeling of remorse or regret for past conduct. True repentance is a godly sorrow for sin, an act of turning around and going in the opposite direction. This type of repentance leads to a fundamental change in a person's relationship towards God. Repentance is a gift to us from God. It begins to remove hostilities between God and our broken flesh. Humans cannot repent of their own 
humans cannot repent on their own volition. You just don't repent on your own. It's God that that sends that conviction and sends that, that thing in you to make you say, oh, man, I messed up. But you can't leave it there, oh, man, I messed up. you got to know now that's God's gift to you, letting you know you messed up and you need to repent. If he doesn't do that, we can never repent. If we never repent, we walk in our sins. If we walk in our sins, we will never inherit eternal life. It takes the grace of God to draw us into repentance. No flesh will glory or take credit for making a turn towards God alone. God gives us permission and a desire to approach him. Hebrews 12 and 2 calls Jesus the author of our faith, which means he is the initiator. He is the one that initiates these things. So God initiates and we're supposed to carry out the actions. Paul said Jesus is the one who has begun a good work in you. Christ gave us the desire to repent, then we then we cannot take the credit for it. According to Philippians 2 and 13, God is working in us, giving us both the desire to do what he wants and the power to do it. There is no better feeling in the world than having a close and fulfilling relationship with God. When our conscience is clear and our heart is clean, we should feel good about our relationship with God. Having confidence towards God empowers us to walk worthy, to pray boldly, to do ministry, to engage the lost, and to serve him in every way feeling good. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Got a story I finished with tonight. And this story will let you know why God is so good to us and why He has given us the gift of repentance. This potter, man that makes pottery, got a store. And so in the store, there's shelves with all these potteries. And people would come in and point to the one they want, and they would buy the one they want. So one day this man came in and says, I want that pottery in the left corner all the way back. And so the girl that's working in the store said, which one? one?" Finally, she pointed to the one, and he says, yeah, that one. And she said, um, that one is not for sale, but I'll get the owner for you. She went in the back. This old dude came out the back. Said, how can I help you? Well, I want to get that pottery, blah, 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 blah. And they told me it's not for sale. And he said, yeah, it's true, it's not for sale. And, and the man was like, listen, I'll pay you whatever, I, whatever it's worth. I'll, I'll pay for it. I just like that one because the color on that one looked different from all the other ones. He was like, I like that. It's different. And so the old man says, I'm sorry. It took a lot out of me to make that one. And the man said, what does that mean? He says, well, every time I put it on the wheel and I try to do what I need to do and I'm doing it, it just wouldn't shape, it wouldn't shape. And so, you know, I put it down and I'll come back to it and I try it again and it just wouldn't shape. And then finally, I realized there was a lump in it. And so I finally was able to take the lump out and 
Now I put it on the wheel and I start shaping it. And it starts shaping good and it starts going good and it's going and I'm shaping and I'm molding. And all of a sudden I realize the color was a little different. I'm like, whoa. Usually when he does the whole pottery thing, he does it, then he paints it. But this one, while he's making it, the color was changing. And you're like, what in the world is going on? And so he finally got done with it and shaped it up and made it nice. Everything was good. And guess what? The old man got done and realized the reason why the thing had a different color in it when he was doing the whole thing, that, 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 that lump that was in it had something in it that cut his finger. And so all the time while he was doing it, his blood was going inside the pottery, going inside the pottery, going inside the pottery. So he didn't know that until when he finally took it out and we're like, oh, and he realized that pottery was made with his blood. So it had a different color from all the other ones. And he told the man, there will never be another one like that. So I can't sell it. And that's how God feel about every one of us tonight. There will be another, never another one like you. So that's why he is always going to extend his grace for you to repent. He will always extend for you to get right. Because there will never be another one like you. I don't care who in the world that talk like you, look like you. They say everybody in this world has a twin. They can have a twin of you all they want. There's none like you. His blood is in your life. And he cannot sell you. And there's not enough money to buy you from him. He paid too much for you. His very own blood. God has given us the gift of repentance. He loves us too much. He has invested his blood in us. And so why would he not want us to repent? Why would he not want us to get our hearts right? Why wouldn't he not want us to get right and live right? He's invested his blood in us. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we're grateful. We're so thankful. Lord, I pray that we can get to that place, Lord God, where we understand who you are, how deeply you care for us, the things that you've done to save us, to keep us, to defend us, the things you have established, Lord God, that we can live this life of liberty and be able, Lord God, to be conduits unto you, Lord God. I pray that somehow tonight this small group of people, Lord God, will adhere to the word of God and that, God, our life could be so changed because of what we just heard tonight, because of you just speaking to our hearts even now as we sit here, that, that you suddenly just move upon us, Lord God, and reaffirm and begin to, oh God, just confirm some things and establish your word in us. Lord, I pray tonight that the power of God will, oh, move in our life and that, Lord God, we can grow. For, Lord, it is your will that none would perish but that all be saved. It is your will that we can be used by you to lead somebody to salvation, to the gospel. Now, Lord, I pray that tonight the power of God will work in us and that Lord will never be the same again. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, 